Hey everybody, welcome to the House of Bliss podcast, your favorite show you've never heard of and the internet's best kept secret. It's a beautiful, sunny Sunday afternoon in Cleveland, Ohio. The birds are chirping, my neighbor's 15 dogs are barking, and I'm feeling happy to be alive. I'm feeling easy like Sunday morning today, but I've also got a whole lot to say, so I'm going to skip the usual pleasantries and commercials and just jump right into it. I want to talk to you today about the prophetic. So let me take you all the way back to the ripe old year of 2013. I was living in Redding, California, attending the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, and I was broke. I mean really broke. I was so broke that I couldn't pay attention, as they say. But during all this time, I was being hammered with this revelation that we are seated in heavenly places. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so during uh, my time as a broke student, I realized that if I really want to marry Katie, I had better have a few more financial prospects than a busted old 95 Saturn. The thing was, I was in a financial pickle. I didn't have any nice clothes. I didn't have any gas for my busted Saturn. I couldn't afford to get my fro tamed at Great Clips. And all of those things kind of piled on top to make a pretty bad interview candidate. And so I found myself sitting in the prayer chapel at Bethel, just saying, Lord, I am stuck. Please help. And then I remember getting this feeling like I should turn to the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians 2, I read about how he has seated us in heavenly places in Christ. And it was like the verse just leapt off the page. And all of a sudden, something clicked inside my heart. You see, in the past, I found myself approaching God based on my own worthiness, bargaining, trying to convince Him to send down a blessing. But suddenly, I realized that He has already placed me within Christ, and I should be praying from that position. So I had this thought kind of come to me, like, would Jesus ever hear a no from the Father? Well, if I'm praying within Christ, then neither will I. If I'm praying from my own self, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But if I'm praying in Christ, then I will not hear a no from my Father. And so I remember having this really intense vision where I saw myself before the throne of grace and I made my request for a good job, a haircut, clothes, fuel for my busted Saturn. And it was like I could feel Christ around me. It almost felt something like being covered in a cloak. It's kind of hard to explain, but I was just aware of this fact that my request was coming from Jesus to the Father and not from me alone. So to make a long story short, the very next day, I was given $100, and that ended up covering my gas and a new button-up shirt. Also, that same day at school, my phone was ringing off the hook with uh, callbacks from different jobs, and I ended up getting the job at Panda Express. I was eating a whole lot of oatmeal at the time, so it was really a nice uh, breakthrough to be able to be eating Chinese food. But anyway, I learned something in that experience that actually became a foundational reality in my life. So what I want to do today is I want to zoom in on an aspect of the prophetic that goes by a few different names. 
Some people call this ascension. Some people call it going to heaven or going up. You might hear it called third heaven encounters or being caught up or whatever. But I want to give one important note about these kinds of experiences. If they are rooted in a proper understanding of the scriptures and our union with Christ, they can be unimaginably good and fruitful. However, if they are rooted in bad theology, they can truly mess people up. I've seen it happen. This is the kind of thing where people start acting spooky and get accused of being, you know, so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But the way I see it, if we actually understood the biblical dynamic between heaven and earth, we would know that to be truly heavenly minded always leads to earthly good. The real problem is that we often divorce heaven from earth and develop a sort of escapist mentality. Escapism, that's when we start to believe that heaven is where all the action is and earth is the place to get out of. For some Christians, that means all heavenly experiences, anything like that, is stuck in the future for when we die. You know, like that old song, Some glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. Others might embrace the supernatural, but still think that heaven is the better place. It's somewhere else, and this whole Christian life thing is about detaching from the ordinary to get up there. So... Instead of writing off the prophetic because of bad theology, I want to explore a more healthy, holistic, union-based approach to these encounters. So, I'm going to do my best in laying out a biblical foundation for what I'm calling ascension. But before I do, I just want to say one quick thing about terminology. Calling this sort of thing going to heaven or going up, in my opinion, are actually misnomers. The Bible says that we are, in fact, currently seated in heavenly places. You can't travel somewhere that you already are. But I personally prefer the term ascension because it has more to do with authority than location. Like in the same way you might say to someone, you're rising through the ranks, or I'm appealing to a higher court. I'm not talking about ascending into another location. I'm talking about praying from awareness of our already ascended authority in Christ. So, now that we have that cleared up, what I'd like to do is read you two of my very favorite ascension verses. And both of these contain heavy references to the Old Testament. So I'm going to read them, and then we'll back way up and take a look at the, bi- take a look at the bigger biblical picture. It's really hard to say three times fast. Biblical, bigger, bigger, biblical picture. (laughs) Not even going to try. So this is going to be a bit of a ride. So buckle up, grab a snack. And let's get biblical. Let's get biblical. Biblical. Anyway, here is the first passage out of the message translation. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. The government of death its constitutions chiseled on stone tablets, had a dazzling inaugural. Moses' face as he delivered the tablets was so bright that day that even though it would soon fade, the people of Israel could no more look right at him than stare into the sun. How much more dazzling then the government of the living spirit. If the government of condemnation was impressive, 
How about this government of affirmation? Bright as that old government was, it would look downright dull alongside this new one. Whenever, though, uh, they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil, and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. So when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it, all of us, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of His face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives. <laughs> that is so good. Here is the second verse. Uh, this is in Hebrews chapter 12. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. The sight that was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborns whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. <laughs> oh. I don't know about you, but I get excited when I hear that. There is so much going on in these verses. But if we really want to get it, we're going to have to back all the way up to Genesis. And so I'm going to take you on a journey, a quick fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants journey through the Old Testament. But just to make sure you're tracking with me, I want you to keep four words in mind. They are mountain, kings, priests, and the voice. So why don't you just say those with me? Mountains, kings, priests, and the voice. When you hear these words, I want your ears to perk up a bit because I'm going to tie it together like a, like a knit theological sweater. So here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Dr. Scott Hahn talks about how in the Hebrew understanding of this verse, God was creating the universe as a cosmic temple. In his book, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, Hahn writes, Genesis presents creation as God's grand home-building project for his children. This is reflected elsewhere in scripture, especially in poetic passages that describe creation as having a foundation, a cornerstone, a roof, doors, windows, and other architectural features. So check out Job 38 through 40 and Psalm 104 for more on that. But in particular, he notes that three architectural images frequently recur, house, palace, and temple. So right here from the beginning, rather than a separate heaven and a separate earth, we see that they were actually made to function together as one whole, or as N.T. Wright says, twin halves of the same created whole. So Eden wasn't just a garden, it was a temple. 
Now, when Adam and Eve are given their famous tasks to tend and keep, what's often missed is that both of these Hebrew words are the same commands given to the priests in Exodus, till being avoda and keep being shamar. So Adam and Eve, they weren't just our naked hippie parents, they were actually the first priests. Um, another was- mistake we often make is to think of heaven in the abstract, especially in a governmental sense. We think things like angels and heavenly thrones and hosts and all that stuff, they're kind of just out there doing their own separate thing. But in Genesis, we see that all of that stuff is inextricably linked to mankind. Some scholars have actually argued that Eden would have been on a mountaintop, which would have culturally carried this obvious meaning of being the meeting place of the gods. So think of it like Mount Olympus to the Greeks. And if you've listened to this show before, you've heard me talk about the Divine Council. These are created beings that show up all throughout the Bible as kind of like God's governmental entourage. So not only was Eden a cosmic temple, but it was also the seat of heaven's government. So let me break this down even further. Adam and Eve were not just to function as priests face in face-to-face friendship with the Lord, but as kings. They were to work in tandem in the garden with heaven's government to expand the rule of God beyond Eden and throughout the earth. Now you'll see why this is important in a minute, but let's, let's jump ahead to Exodus. Um, Before I get into Exodus, though, let me just remind you that after the fall, God made a promise to a man named Abraham that one day he would make a nation out of him. This nation would be a nation of kings and priests who would go on to be the light that blesses the entire world. Okay, Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we get the amazing story of God liberating his people, the Israelites, from slavery. After 400 long years, God was finally ready to keep his promise to Abraham and make a nation for himself. Even though God took the Israelites out of Egypt, as you'll see, it took generations to get the Egypt out of them. Because all they'd ever known was slavery. The only gods they had ever known were those of the Egyptians. You can actually get a glimpse into their psyche here when Moses says to Pharaoh, Let us go into the wilderness and sacrifice to our God, lest he strike us with pestilence or sword. Isn't that weird? God never said anything like that. But the more you read the story of Exodus, the more it seems like these guys really thought that Yahweh was just like one of the Egyptian gods, as in he was pretty much out to get them. Now, eventually, they got to what I would say is probably one of the most pivotal moments in all of the Old Testament, where they're out in the desert and they're going to meet God on Sinai. On the mountain, God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. These weren't just rules, they would be something like the Declaration of Independence from Egypt. This was the beginning of this new nation. So God brought them out of Sinai and gave them one of the most earth-shatteringly important invitations in all of the Bible. He says to them, If you obey my voice, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is an explosive idea, and it's a real key for understanding the New Testament. Think about it. 
In most cultures, a priest is someone who makes direct contact with whatever divine being they represent. Um, they would be someone who's entrusted with the ways of God, someone who gets to speak with God and gain wisdom for how to govern and order the world. They could be thought of as divine representatives. So God actually intended that all of Israel would get to be priests. Now, a king obviously deals with authority and governments and resource. So how could there be an entire nations of kings and priests? Have you ever thought of that? It's because God actually wanted to interact with them all directly. Now, I miss this on almost all of my past read-throughs um, of this story. But there is a point where God actually invites them to come up on the mountain to join Moses. But it, it was they who refused. They were the ones that said to Moses, you go up on the mountain for us. It wasn't until this point in time that God had to section off a single tribe to act as the priests. So why would they reject God like that? Well, remember, they thought that God wanted to kill them. I think what was going on is they completely misunderstood his character. To me, when I read this, it seems like God's dream for them was way too up close and personal for their comfort. Also, think about how difficult it must have been for them to process going from slaves to rulers. They were probably just deeply intimidated by this royal call. But unfortunately, their rejection created a big, big problem. If they didn't want to hear the voice of the Lord, they couldn't be a nation of priests. So they demanded that Moses go up and be their priest instead. Ironically, down the road, they also demanded a king, which is another thing God explicitly stated he never wanted for them. And so, at that moment, they forfeit both their kingly and priestly roles, and therefore their destiny to be a light to the nations. But luckily for you, me, and planet Earth, God didn't quit on his dream. Okay, so now, if you're hearing all that and wondering, what on earth does this have to do with me? Well, just stay with me for a second. The Bible calls Jesus the new Adam. And that right there carries infinite meaning that we could talk about for the next 20 years. But there are also some essential parallels between Jesus and Moses. The Gospels kind of paint this picture of Jesus as a sort of new Moses. But Jesus wasn't just liberating Israel. He liberated all of humanity from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus' sacrifice gave us the confidence to boldly approach the throne of grace and reclaim our royal destiny. He became the priest that Israel cried out for on Sinai. He also became the true king that they demanded. But he's not just a king, he's the king of kings. So when we receive his grace and live by his voice, we can reign in life as Romans says. So when we look at Jesus, we're not just looking at the embodiment of God's nature. We are looking at the truest embodiment of humanity as well. Jesus restored us to the garden. And remember, the garden isn't just a garden. By tearing the temple veil, Jesus restored the whole world to being God's cosmic temple. And we, its priests. Furthermore, Jesus said he would build his ecclesia. Ecclesia is a Roman governmental word for a citizen-led decision-making body. And this is where things get really exciting. 
the gospel is our invitation into a whole new created order. It's a whole new way of being human. That's not an abstract statement at all. We can just see from the story that God is intensely practical. Every last little detail mattered to him, right down to the blue pomegranates on the priestly robes. This same divine wisdom is wide open to us now in Jesus Christ. It says, In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, and you are complete by your union with him. Think about this, the one who has all insight, strategy, destiny, and knowledge of all mysteries that could ever be known is living inside of you right now. You're a genius by association. Now, the way that we actually access this kind of wisdom is not through our intellectual studies. And by the way, all of that is good. God gave us brains so that we would use them. No, but this kind of wisdom comes through supernatural prophetic encounters with the resurrected Jesus. In other words, we can only get this kind of wisdom on the mountain. See, you and I right here and now, we are now living in the fulfillment of the Father's original dream for us. That passage in Hebrews I read at the beginning talks about how the Israelites came to Mount Sinai with fear, but we have come to Mount Zion with joy, the seat of heavenly government. We can encounter God on the mountain within and hear his voice. So do you need wisdom for your life? I mean, think about how insanely difficult it would have been to lead a nation. I've heard estimates floating around out there that there were as as many as one and a half million Israelites all in the hot sun being led by one guy, Moses. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time leading my two beautiful kids to church on time, much less a nation. Yet when Moses went up the mountain of God, God showed him exactly what to do. He said, do everything according to the pattern that I show you on the mountain." And so in that place of glory and encounter, he was given enough wisdom to organize a ragtag group of slaves into a full-fledged nation. And as good as that was, remember the verse I read says that the government we have in Christ is incomparably greater. It says that government looks dull in comparison to the bright and shining glory of this government. So hopefully here, you're starting to make some connections between spiritual encounters, royal destiny, and hearing the Lord's voice on the mountain to establish government. Now I realize that this may still seem a bit abstract to some of you, so let's just make it even more practical. In a minute, I'm going to share some testimonies about how this actually looks for my wife and I, Um, but first I just want to touch on the voice of the Lord for a sec. The Bible says that the Spirit of God searches out the mind of God and declares mysteries to us. This is why the voice of the Lord is so important. Because when the Lord speaks, He creates. All of matter bends to the voice of the Lord. So when He speaks things into your life, He's simultaneously revealing His will and releasing the power to accomplish it. So this right here is the heart of the prophetic, to season our words with grace, which is divine power. Right now, 
inside of you, if you'll engage with him, the spirit of God is waiting to release the treasures of wisdom hidden in Christ. So Moses went up the mountain and was shown something in the spirit. Then he did everything according to the pattern. To me, I think this is probably what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he said, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. I believe that what we're discovering right now is that one of the primary roles of the church is releasing the government of heaven. You know how it talks about how in the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be above all the other mountains? Um, Honestly, I'm not even really sure what this looks like on a national level. So I'll just start with what it looks like in the Harmon household. (laughs) This whole revelation of living according to the pattern, this is something that my wife and I have been trying to practice for a while now. So periodically, we like to take some time where we can just be alone together, put on some worship music, and engage with God through visualization. Um, And then once we feel like we're in that space of encounter, then we'll start to go through specific areas of our lives, asking God to show us what He dreams of. So for example, the last time we did this, we asked God to show us his dream for our marriage, for how to raise our kids, for ministry together, our finances, so on and so forth. And so we did this at the beginning of the year, and it's already been amazing to see how our life has matched what we wrote down. Now, sometimes these strategies look like really specific instructions. Okay, for example, um, I used to struggle with mood swings and have a weak stomach So the Lord actually showed me in the spirit a custom diet to follow. Within a few weeks, my mood stabilized, my digestion problems vanished. My wife actually remarked she feels like she has a whole new husband. Now that's amazing, but hear me out on this. This is very, very, very different than just making like New Year's resolutions because it's his voice that actually releases the grace to obey. Now, in the past, I tried time and time again to eat differently, but it wasn't until I had this encounter that my negative cravings actually ceased. Other times, it's just stuff like how to furnish the house. One time, the Lord showed us to keep our TV stashed away in the closet. It's still a small part of our lives. We still like movies and stuff, but by removing it from the focal point of our living room, it's not nearly as easy to be distracted. Uh, We started keeping our phones put away and our books like more available to us so that instead of, you know, just scrolling all day, like we'll we'll be much quicker to like open a book or um, just start to engage with the Lord in worship. And that stuff is cool. But there's something else that's built into the kingly priestly language, and that is managing resources. We get the incredible honor of releasing heaven's treasure into the earth. You see, prayer isn't just about asking God for things. He's already given us all things. However, when we understand that, that allows us to reach into the Spirit, into His divine, infinite resources, and pull what we need into the physical world around us. I've had it happen a few times now where I've needed money and I've gone into the Spirit to get it. There have been times in encounters where I've seen the Lord hand me specific amounts of money, and then within a few weeks, I end up with that exact amount. Once I had a dream uh, where the Lord handed me $900. Literally, the next morning, I was at church, and a friend handed me an envelope with $900. 
all last summer. I felt like I wasn't supposed to work, but instead just practice this concept of reaching into heaven for what I need. And believe me, that was every bit as awkward as you can imagine, especially when people were asking me what I was doing for a living. Uh, But there was this one point where after uh, praying in the Spirit for a while, I had this vision of $4,200. So once again, in my mind's eye, I just reached out and I took it. And that very month, three different people gave us money and it totaled to just over $4,200. Now, stuff like that is awesome, but it's not just money either. Um, Sometimes the Lord will show us future events Like once I was just out and about walking through my neighborhood. And as many of you probably know, we live in one of the roughest parts of Cleveland. We're part of an inner city ministry out here. And so when we first moved into our house, there were abandoned houses everywhere. That's kind of a problem because it leaves the door open for squatters and drug traffickers, like all kinds of unpleasant stuff. So on my walk... I asked the Lord what his dream for our block was. And all of a sudden, I was taken into this vision and I saw so clearly, I saw an elementary school. And in this vision, all the streets looked brand new. There weren't any abandoned houses. And so I remember just going on the rest of my walk saying, Lord, let it be. Let your will be done. I release this dream of your heart right now. And it was somewhere between six months to a year later, there was an announcement that the city was building a school right behind our house. So the amazing part about that is there's a state law that says all the abandoned houses within a mile of school grounds have to be demolished. And so immediately these unsafe houses started getting knocked down and replaced with, uh, with like grassy little lots. And so it's fun because as I'm recording this, I'm looking out the window at a brand new elementary school, just like I saw in my vision. So with all that being said, I hope that you're beginning to see that statements like we are seated in heavenly places are the farthest possible thing from abstract. What I hope you're beginning to see is the extraordinary riches of having the mind of Christ. I hope you're beginning to feel an awesome sense that God is doing amazing things and he's doing them through you. And so what I want to know is, will you engage with God in this way? What if you began to release the dreams of God in your family, on your block, in your city, to be a Christian, to be the church, is so much more than just believing in ethereal doctrines and having meetings. To be the ecclesia is to step into our upward call to be kings and priests on the earth. And so I want to encourage you, God has things for you on Mount Zion. Like Moses, we have the incredible privilege of doing all things in life according to the pattern that he shows us. Unlike Moses, however, we are not encountering an external God in a far-off place. No, the heavenly mountain is Christ within you. No longer do we live by tablets of stone, but by his living voice that releases the grace to accomplish his will. Uh, So, 
in the next episode, I'm going to be doing some activation around this theme of dreams and visions. Uh, I'm actually going to walk you through like some exercises on how you can just kind of engage with that realm in your mind and your spirit. But until then, I just want to say a blessing over you. Lord, I pray that you just begin to awaken this revelation in the hearts of my listeners right now, that every person listening would begin to feel the excitement of what you're dreaming about. Lord, that you would give them like a whole new way of seeing planet earth that they would have encounters with you encounters in their sleep encounters during the day encounters in worship that they would actually see the world the way that you see it and that you would show them that they yes them the one listening has an integral part in seeing your glory shine in the earth all around them lord i thank you that there is no situation you don't have solutions for There is no tangled knot of problems too difficult for you to unravel. You are here for restoration. Just like you said in Isaiah 61, ruined cities are going to be restored. Uh, Desolations of generations, years and years of family dysfunction are are just going to be healed, set free, delivered, saved until all of us are reigning in life just like you promised. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you, Lord. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the House of Bliss podcast. Hey, if you'd like to support this ministry, it is super easy to do it. All you need to do is click the link in the description of this episode and go to our Patreon page. Sign up there for as little as a dollar a month. You can not only support us, but you can get access to all kinds of super cool behind-the-scenes benefits. Thanks so much for considering it, and God bless.